The disaster we are discussing today is deeply linked to Treaty 7 territory, which is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Kenai, Pekani, and Siksika, as well as the Satina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. This territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson. And I'm Jenny. And this episode is entitled, The Mountain That Moved, Lessons from the Frank Slide. In this episode, we'll be looking back, 119 years back to be precise, on the deadliest landslide in Canadian history and asking what happened, what can we learn, and will it happen again? To this end, we will be speaking with Dr. Andre Blaise Stevens, a geologist with Natural Resources Canada, and Mariah Sagrafina, who's an interpreter at the Frank Slide Interpretive Centre. We'll also be reviewing documents and plans from both the past and the present. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. And oh my God, how that mountain came down. Oh, how the mountain came down, down, down. The whole town of Frank was buried in the ground. Oh, my God, how that mountain came down. Well, that was Stompin' Tom Connors, How the Mountain Came Down, and just the fact that this disaster has its own theme music should indicate the incredible impact that Frank Slide has and continues to have today. But before we get into that, I would like to introduce my co-host for this episode. Uh, this is Jenny Steenstra. Jenny comes to us from Nate, where she is completing her capstone project on this very topic and is also a Public Safety Canada Regional Program Coordinator. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks, Grayson. So for those who are not from Alberta or who maybe haven't heard of Frank Slide before, can you just give us a quick recap of what it was and why you chose to study this particular disaster from over 100 years ago? Yeah, so the Frank Slide was the deadliest landslide in Canadian history. It occurred on April 29, 1903, when the north peak of Turtle Mountain broke off, triggering a landslide that covered part of the town of Frank and the surrounding area and over 30 million cubic meters of rocks and debris. Approximately 90 people were killed. And I was interested in studying this particular disaster, in part because it's a fairly well-known bit of Alberta history and Canadiana, but I was also wondering, having landslides on my mind somewhat due to events in British Columbia last fall, for example, if there's value in reviewing an event that occurred so far in the past through an emergency management lens. So what can the past tell us about emergency management and landslides today? Well, that's certainly what we hope to answer. But before we get too far into the history part of things, it's probably a good idea to understand landslide hazards a little bit more. So what did you find out and who did you talk to? I came into this project with a lot of questions about what happened during the Frank slide and also why those events took place. But I was also curious about landslides as a hazard in general. So to get a background on landslides and some details on how geology influenced the Frank slide, we spoke to Dr. Andre Blaise Stevens. My name is Andre Blaise Stevens. I'm a geologist from the Geological Survey of Canada. I have experience in uh, mapping superficial sediments as well as understanding landslides. And I am project leader across Canada for landslides and marine geohazards within the Public Safety Geoscience Program within the Geological Survey of Canada within Natural Resources Canada. 
as far as the geological survey specifically, we're here to provide the baseline geoscience information for decision makers and for uh, stakeholders. But we are not the ones that implement the decisions. We can, we can contribute in the research by collaborating with other folks from provinces, from academia, from uh, the private sector, but we do not provide the decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about the landslide hazard from a technical perspective? The landslide is defined by David Cruden, who was a prof at U of A. In 1991, he defined it as a movement of massive rock, debris, or earth down a slope. We usually think that landslides only occur in the mountains, but that isn't always the case. Landslides can occur in soils that are full of silts and clays on very, very shallow slopes. Yes, mountains uh, have more landslides for sure, but in our area, in, Otto in the Ottawa, St. Lawrence Lowlands, we have, uh, we call them sensitive plates, and they are prone to landslides and have caused quite a bit of damage. So how does it, does one happen? It, uh, it occurs because of gravity, simply put. And there are five mechanisms that are responsible for slope movement. So fall. So this is where individual boulders fall from a slope. And they rarely ever happen all together. It's just one once in a while. And then a topple is like fractured bedrock that actually topples like you would see dominoes falling. And then we have a slide, which is usually a large uh, landslide, and it slides along a, a gliding plane. Well, that's why we have the catch term called landslide is because most of the time we think things are sliding, but they don't always slide. They either fall or they topple. The fourth one is spread, where you've got, usually on the shallow slopes, uh, you've got forward movement, but you've also got spreading, so widening of the movement as it goes downhill. And then the last one is flow, where it's like, it's more runny. It's got lots more water in the involved in the, in the process. So this is, uh, you can imagine a steep stream coming down with lots of rain all of a sudden because there's a, a rainfall warning. Well, the water will catch debris along the way, and as it falls downhill, it catches more debris, and then it becomes a flow. So another way is not only do we classify by the mechanism, but we also classify by the material that moves down. And since 2004, since 2014, sorry, classify landslides up to 34 categories. You know, it, it used to be only about 18 categories, but as we learn more about materials and mechanisms, we were able to classify into more categories. How common are landslides in Canada? Well, they are very common. They occur everywhere. Like I said, uh, as long as you've got a slope and unstable material, you can have a landslide. Large landslides are often isolated, especially if they haven't been triggered by precipitation events by something like an earthquake or freeze-thaw cycles. But one thing that we noticed, though, just plotting the fatal landslide events that I compiled since 1771, you can see an increase in landslide fatalities in the spring months and in the fall months, which is the rainy season. So yes, there is some kind of a landslide season, but usually the factors are not only precipitation, but they can be snow melt and they can be freeze-thaw cycles. But yes, certainly the fall months and the spring months are times for worrying about landslides. Does human activity have any impact on landslide risk? There's all kinds of triggers eh, for landslides. You can um, 
road constructions, blasting can cause landslides, fires. If it's a man-made fire, then it can strip the vegetation. The slope becomes uh, unstable. There's all kinds of triggers that are related to building. If people are building in the wrong areas without actually understanding the their environment, then it could be human uh, caused. And for example, uh, in the mid 1800s in Quebec City, there were houses built very close to uh, what they called the Cap, which is in uh, in Old Quebec. And so there were about three or four rock slides that hit houses down below. And re- they eventually realized that they shouldn't build so close to a slope. And, and what they didn't realize at the time either is that they were actually digging into the uh, fragile bedrock. And so that destabilized the actual slope and it would eventually fail uh, on top of, of houses. So through time, we noticed that there were fewer fatalities per event and fewer fatalities per decade uh, related to landslides because people understood better their, uh, their environment. What about other hazards? Can they increase the risk of landslides? One of the things that I hope that eventually we can study is a, a combination of cascading events. Like for example, you had the heat dome in the summertime and then the heat dome created forest fires or helped create forest fires. And then with the atmospheric river that dumped rain all over the slopes of BC, it closed all the arteries from Vancouver East and North for several days. So that not only ended up killing people, it killed five people on uh, Highway 99 north of Whistler, but it also um, you know, stopped the supply chain because the trains couldn't go anywhere and the trucks couldn't go anywhere. So I don't think our work is finished. Uh, we should study more the impacts that climate can do, whether we call it climate change or present day climate. So do you think we're headed into a situation where we will see more landslides like that? Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm expecting more heat domes and more devastation through time, unfortunately, until we get a better handle on on, uh, what is happening. And unfortunate to say, but you need disasters for people to start doing things about uh, these disasters. Let's talk about the Frank slide specifically now. What kind of landslide was it? Why was it so deadly? And is there any ongoing risk? Well, they think it was uh, started off as a topple from three star cycles, and then it just ended up becoming a rock avalanche, which is similar process as you would see in a snow avalanche. It's just that it's all bedrock. And it's our worst Canadian landslide disaster since 1771 because it killed 73 people. And that's the highest number for per event that we've ever uh, documented. And people were in their houses built just downhill from the actual mountain called Turtle Mountain. The triggers are thought to be tunneling through the, the bedrock that wasn't very strong bedrock. They call it weak bedrock, so fine-grained bedrock. And, and they were tunneling for coal because it was a coal mine, as well as they think freeze-thaw cycles were also part of it. And it could be an accumulation over years. And we know that it's the North Peak that has failed, and now the South Peak is being monitored heavily just because of the potential for it to fail. Normally, when you have a, such a large failure like a rock avalanche, you actually stabilize the slope, right? Because it's it's done what it has to do. But what we know about specifically about Frank's slide is that one part of it failed, but just next to it, another peak is showing a similar signs as what happened with the North Peak. 
So it's not exactly the same structure as in the North Peak, like the folds within the bedrock aren't exactly the same, but there is enough evidence to see that the cracks are moving and expanding. The, these cracks are also called sakung features. It's also called a tension gap. And they've, they've installed a, a extensometers to try to see how far, how wide these uh, will, will expand. Also, um, they're analyzing the entire slope with satellite imagery to try to see, okay, which part of it is moving. So they've done enough work to figure out that this is worth monitoring. It's one of the, like, the most monitored landslides in Canada. Do we know when the south slope will slide? Yeah, we never, we never really know exactly when a landslide is going to occur, right? But I think there, there comes a critical point where you say, okay, well, the crack can't go any further than this. So then let's, let's evacuate people downhill. But in our case, with the fact that there's a moratorium on building downslope from Turtle Mountain, we don't get rid of people. The one thing we could do, though, is close the highway until the slope has been stabilized. What are some other examples of preparedness or mitigation measures that are in place for other landslide areas? Other types of mitigation measures um, vary depending on the type of landslide and how large the landslide slope is. Like, uh, for example, along the Sky Highway north of Vancouver to Whistler, in the 1980s, they realized that these steep streams all had these debris flows that had damaged houses and bridges and wiped out roads and killed people. So they decided to build these debris basins to stop the debris from hitting the railway, the highway, the houses down below. So another technique that they used was um, shooting channels where it actually, it was a concrete channel instead of the actual stream itself. They built concrete channels to control the flow straight to the house up. So that was a way for it to stop from diverting left or right or, you know, just straight down. And another way that they have uh, dealt with some of the problems with uh, what they call mudslides in BC, right in September of 2021, before the actual disasters that occurred in November, parts of the highway close to Lytton, they had decided to close because they knew Lytton had had forest fires. Forest fires actually make slopes unstable because the vegetation is stripped. So that causes... Uh, potential for what they call mudslides, and we call them debris flows. But they knew that there was potential near Lytton, so they actually closed the highway uh, during uh, an atmospheric river that was before the November events. We don't, they don't always have the right mitigation measures for the right uh, environment, but they're working on it through research and through time, and unfortunately through disasters. What lessons would you want us to learn from the Frank slide? The biggest lesson, I think, uh, we need to understand the material on which we are built and how close we are to uh, slopes that are susceptible to landslides. We need to understand the geological framework, the climatological framework, the geotechnical framework to try to understand the potential danger and risk. You need to carefully choose where your town's going to be built, where your infrastructure is going to be built, like highways and railways. At that time, they didn't know what the dangers were. Well, fantastic find with that interview. And certainly I had no idea that landslides could occur on basically flat ground. And there are just so many different types to consider and, and different causes. Can you 
kind of recap for us a little bit about uh, some of the relevant topics that came out of that for you and how they apply to the Frank slide? So the Frank slide started as a topple, albeit a very large topple where the peak of the mountain broke off and then it transitioned into a rock avalanche. I was kind of struck by the range of contributing factors to this landslide. So there's the time period. People didn't really know that much about landslides in 1903. Uh, weather factors. Southern Alberta experienced a warm winter followed by a cold spring in 1903, which exacerbated the effect of the freeze-thaw cycle on the mountain and it brought significant precipitation. So the mining industry, at the time it occurred, mining was believed to be the main cause of the slide. However, it is now considered to be more of a secondary factor. In addition to explosions conducted to create the mine in 1901, over 275,000 tons of coal were mined from the base of the mountain. And of course, from Dr. Blaise Stevens's interview, we know that geology was the overwhelming cause of the slide. Turtle Mountain has a few unique factors that make it susceptible to sliding. It was formed out of a thrust fault where older limestone is pushed up on top of younger shale and coal, which is not as stable as some other types of mountains. And the mountain's peaks have been pushed together into an anticline, where horizontal layers of rock push into an arch shape that's less stable and more vulnerable to gravity and weakening over time. So certainly a lot of geological causes, but what really struck me from her interview was this idea of compounding and interacting hazards as well. You know, does the heat dome lead to increased flooding, lead to increased freeze thaw, lead to increased landslides? I think that's such an interesting idea is that intersectionality of, of different hazards. So that's the hazard side of it. Let's get a little bit into the history. And I keep on hearing, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know that this was a landslide area, but long before there was written history, there was traditional knowledge. And in fact, I understand that there was quite a lot of knowledge around the hazards in the, the Frank area. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So as a case study, this is a clear example of how a community's lived experiences and traditional knowledge can be incredibly valuable to emergency managers and why this perspective should have a seat at the table. In this case, traditional Indigenous knowledge increased resilience in the Blackfoot and Kootenai nations that had lived in the area for hundreds and thousands of years. These communities witnessed frequent, smaller rockfalls and heard trembling and crackling on the mountain. Their oral tradition referred to it as the mountain that moved, and so they would avoid camping near the base of Turtle Mountain. These communities clearly understood that there was a risk in the area, and so they took measures to reduce their exposure in a way that people in the industrial town of Frank did not. I really like this idea, and I think you did a great job in, in your report and this episode of including traditional knowledge and basically the hazard assessment, and I would love to see more of that going forward. So for me, that was a huge takeaway from your project is, is don't just rely on, on written word, get to know the community and the Indigenous knowledge in, in the area. Let's move on to some of the impacts. Of course, the impacts of the slide were devastating. I was fortunate enough to connect with an interpreter at the Frank Slide, and we have her here to tell us more about the history and impacts of the Frank Slide. So my name is Mariah Sagrafina, and I'm joining you from the Frank Slide Interpretive Centre, which is located in southern Alberta in the Crow's Nest Pass. The slide came down on April 29th, 1903 at 4.10 in the morning. And when those rocks came down, it did change the lives of many of people that lived in the town of Frank. Out of a town of 600 people, there were approximately 120 in the direct path of the rocks. Uh, one of our greatest myths is that the entire town was destroyed, and that is not true. It was only a very small portion of the town. And in that area, there were 23 survivors that did manage to climb out of the rocks. 
all the survivors came from a very small row of miners' cottages that were literally on the edge of the slide, a matter of meters, and their homes would have been okay. So in this row of miners' cottages, the very first home was the Bansmer family home. Mr. Bansmer was not home that night, but he was out at Lumbrook working on his family homestead. But his wife and um, his seven, seven out of nine children were there with his wife on the night of the slide. Their house was picked up and moved five meters off its foundation. However, everybody inside survived. In fact, their house was in such good condition that the family was able to open the front door and walk away. Their next door neighbors, however, were not as lucky. That was the Leach family. Uh, so Mr. and Mrs. Leach and their four sons were sleeping in the lower level of the house and the three girls were sleeping in the upper level of the house. When the slide did smash into the house, it killed Mr. and Mrs. Leach and the four sons on the lower level. The three girls, however, all managed to survive. The two eldest were pinned underneath their metal bed frame and they said it acted almost like a cage and the rocks rolled over top of them. The youngest girl, her name was Marion Leach, she was tossed out a window and found sitting on the rocks the next morning, not a scratch on her. So another one of the myths that came from Frank's slide is there was one sole survivor, it was a baby girl, too young to speak, and they picked her up and they called her Frankie Slide. And this story really sprang around Marion Leach. She was about two years old at the time, but there was also some other baby girls that survived. Uh, the Ackroyd family home, there was only one survivor, a young boy, 14 years old. His name was Lester. When they found Lester, he was pinned in between two rocks and he had a piece of wood that had gone through his feather mattress and impaled him in the side. Lester surprisingly survived his injuries, managed to climb out from the rocks, but one of the impacts of the slide was rerouting Gold Creek. When Lester had gone to bed, Gold Creek was in his backyard. When he woke up, it was in his front yard. So the poor kid had to swim the creek. It was minus 20 on the night of the slide, one of the coldest nights the miners said they had experienced the entire winter. So he had to swim the creek just to make it into town to receive medical attention. And the doctor at the time said he had to pluck him like a chicken almost to get all the feathers out of his wound from that piece of wood going through the feather mattress. Uh, the Ennis family also survived. Their house was completely destroyed. However, everyone made it out okay, including Gladys Ennis. She was the longest lived survivor of the Frank slide and she passed away in 1993 in Bellevue, Washington. And the last house was the Watkins family and everybody in that house survived as well. Despite their house being pretty much completely smashed into bits, they were thrown into the rubble and their youngest daughter, Fernie Mae Watkins, was found lying on a pile of hay the next morning. Also not a scratch on the young girl. So it did destroy that portion of town, but also located in that area, one of the biggest impacts to the town of Frank would have been the, um, the coal mine. It destroyed all the surface workings of the coal mine. It destroyed three kilometers of the Canadian Pacific Railway, another three kilometers of the Frank and Grassy Mountain Railway, which connected into the Canadian Pacific Main Line. Um, also an electric lamp plant, a shoe store, a livery stable, and the McVeigh and Papour construction camp, which had been working on the Canadian Pacific Pacific rail line at that time. But the mine really was one of the biggest impacts to the town of Frank. In terms of mining, though, surprisingly, it didn't affect the inner workings of the mine. And therefore, um, they did continue mining once the surface workings were rebuilt about three months later. One of the best stories to do with the mine was the miners that were trapped 
On the night of the slide, there were 17 men trapped in the underground mine. Surprisingly enough, those men dug themselves out, took them 13 hours, but all 17 men managed to escape. However, one month later, they went back into the underground mine, trying to see what condition it was in to see if it could be reopened. And to their surprise, 31 days later, this mine was in excellent condition. However, as they were going through, all of a sudden they heard chains rattling in the back of the mine, which if you're a miner and you have a lot of superstitions, that means get out. Um, so some of them were like, no, I quit. Mm -mm, not today. <laughs> some of the other men decided, no, we got to go check this out. And that's when they found Charlie. And Charlie was a horse who had been working on the night of the Frank slide, and he had survived 31 days in the underground mine all by himself. So he had survived by eating timbers, drinking seepage water from a blocked lower entrance, and sucking on his harness for salt. After the slide had occurred, uh, the very first responders were actually the people in the town, the people who had survived. So because it happened at 4.10 in the morning, um, everybody was jarred awake. They had no idea what was going on. It was very dusty and it was very cold. So once the once dawn came about and they were able to see what was going on, that's when they knew they had quite, uh, quite uh, a formidable task ahead of them. So they went into the area of town where they were able to see the rubble of homes, and that's where the first rescue efforts began. Later on, it spread a little bit further into the slide, but the deepest area of the slide where some of the loss of life did occur is over 50 meters deep. And because of that, um, much of it was never able to be recovered. So in total, they were able to find 12 bodies. They found those at the time of the slide. And then in 1922, they were widening the road that they put through. And that is when they stumbled upon a house with six bodies in it. So in total of the 90 or so people that were killed by the slide, there were only ever 18 bodies recovered. We estimate at least 70 are still buried under the rocks of the Frank slide. So after the slide as well, the railway was the main mode of transportation throughout the Crow's Nest Pass. And due to that, that was the primary goal was to get that railway rebuilt. So the Canadian Pacific Railway ended up bringing in men from all over the place. And there was close to 1,100 men working on the railway. And they managed to put it through in an astounding uh, 21 days. It was in full operation in three weeks, uh, which is truly a feat. However, the road was not considered important whatsoever. So the very first road went through the Frank slide in 1906, three years after the slide had happened. Prior to that, if you wanted to, let's say, get around the slide via horse and wagon or ride around it, you literally had to do the entire perimeter all the way around the Frank slide. So that was a quite a, about five or six hours just to get around the Frank slide. So the original road is still down there today, as well as the part that they widened in 1922. Locals just call it Old Frank Road. Um, it's a gravel road and you can still drive down it today. It's a very uh, interesting part uh, of the slide. Now in the larger area, because this was a major disruption to the rail line, it cut off Southern Alberta from the rest of Canada. So that's why it became so important to get everything through. Um, we did find with things like messages at the time, the telegraph, ironically message and word of the disaster did get out, but everything had to be sent first into British Columbia and then sent around through Rogers Pass to be able to get the word out to the Eastern Canada 
Canada, and in fact, the United States. So we do know that there was reports by the Ottawa Evening Citizen about the Frank slide, as well as the New York Times days after it had happened. Um, of course, at the time, it was, uh, they knew something bad had happened, um, but people thought it was an earthquake or a volcano that had opened up. Some did say it was a massive mine explosion. Um, and then a little bit later on, uh, it did come out that it was the landslide. Um, obviously, no one knew what was happening out east of the slide. Everyone to the west, they pretty much had a good idea and they were able to stop the trains because there were multiple towns um, as you approached uh, on the western side of the slide. However, on the eastern slide, the closest place or the closest station would have been Pincher Creek. So after the slide had happened, there was a train that was expected to come through the rocks of the Frank slide. It was running behind. So at the time of the slide, there was a, a group of men working on a spur line that went towards the mine and they were just moving coal cars around. They said that when the slide had happened, they felt the rumbling and they could hear the rocks coming down and they hopped on their little engine and managed to get it out of the way just in time. So uh, Ben Murgatroyd was the conductor, Bill Lowe's was the brakeman and Sid Choquette was one of the other gentlemen working on, on this little engine. So after the slide happened, they realized that this passenger train was due to arrive and they had absolutely no idea that the slide had happened. So Sid Choquette started off at the very west end of the slide and started, and this would have been at four, four o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, and began to make his way running all the way across in the dark with only a lantern to the eastern edge of the slide to stop this passenger train. The rocks are horrible to run across, but Sid Choquette did make it to the other side and stopped the passenger train in time so it did not collide with the rocks of the Frank slide. Um, by that point in time, word was able to get out that no passage was possible. And any trains coming through the area after that, before the rail line was finished, they would stop at one end of the slide, the passengers would disembark, and they would literally have to walk over the rocks of the Frank slide to get to the opposite side of wherever they were going. So Sid Choquette, for his efforts, uh, received a $25 reward from the Canadian Pacific Railway and a letter of commendation. What was the town of Frank like in 1903 and did it change a lot from before to after the slide? It really was a bustling little town. So by 1903, Frank had about 600 people living in it um, and everyone was tied in some way, shape or form to the coal mine because that was the primary industry. But the little town had pretty much everything you needed. There was four hotels, there was a bank. Uh, they also had a two, uh, two floor schoolhouse, which was a pretty, pretty big event um, and a doctor living there. So it really was this up and coming town and it had the potential to really spring into something more. When the Frank slide did occur, it kind of cut off the direction that the town could grow. So to the north was mountains, to the west was more mountains, to the south was more mountains, but to the east, that was the natural progression of which way the town was going to grow. So because of the slide, it really kind of stifled the growth of the town, but the town itself did continue on until the mine shut down in 1918. After the mine shut down, uh, Frank became a bedroom community for other areas in the Crow's Nest past. What is the legacy of the slide today? 
Well, it's quite an interesting place because you can't drive through the Crow's Nest Pass without seeing the big pile of rocks. So the legacy really is the story and, and the story of the people who were there. And it really does have a profound effect on the Crow's Nest Pass. This area was forged with coal mining and a lot of tragedy. So, and the crank slide was really a testament to that. So, and also because there is this risk of it potentially coming down again, it's one of those sites that we can learn from the past to hopefully help, you know, not make the same mistakes again in the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually made a trip out to the Frank Slide Interpretive Center for this episode. And boy, so many interesting stories, so many uh, detailed records, but also so much missing. The fact that they don't know exactly how many people even died in the Frank Slide was mind blowing to me. And there were just so many interesting stories of, of response. Can you tell us a few of your favorites? For sure. One of my favorite stories out of this was that when the slide occurred at 4 10 a.m., there was actually a shift of workers in the mine. And so when the rocks came down and destroyed the entrance to the mine, they were trapped in the mine shaft. And they chose not to wait and see if anyone would be able to rescue them. They also chose not to accept their grim fate. So they began to follow a line of coal, which they knew was softer than the surrounding limestone, and began to just dig, dig towards the surface. Amazingly, they reached the surface and freed themselves about 13 hours after the slide happened. So, you know, by dinner time on April 29th, this group of 14 men had freed themselves from the mine shaft. And then the mine reopened within a month. That's so interesting that they're able to, to reopen so quickly. And I just have this image of uh, a, a bunch of rescuers at the, the mine entrance digging away against this tough rock and all of the <laughs> trap miners just kind of wandering up behind them and being, hey, what you guys doing? We, we rescued ourselves <laughs> already. And I really think there's just so many stories in this that reinforce this idea that the first responders are actually the people who are directly impacted. You know, they're not the victims all of the time. They are the first responders. And uh, and even 119 years ago, that was true. So it's clear that the response was very locally driven and the recovery was very driven by the economics of the time, getting the railway open, getting the coal mines back open. And we also know that the hazard hasn't gone away. The, this will happen again. Um, there are several peaks that are being... Uh, monitored and are considered hazardous. What is the current state of, of mitigation? What is being done to prepare the area for this imminent threat? So in terms of mitigation and risk reduction, the main town site of Frank was actually relocated in 1911 due to fears that there was going to be another slide imminently. So all of the buildings were taken down and they were moved to the east into an area called New Frank. This combined with a general decrease in population in the area has contributed to reducing risk, but there are other mitigative actions in place. The government of Alberta at one point did offer incentives for people to relocate out of the area. And in the last 10 or 15 years, the municipality of Crow's Nest Pass has put in place land use bylaws to limit development in areas of more extreme risk. This includes a restriction on new development in the Turtle Mountain Restricted Development Area near the base of the mountain. I think these are classic examples of effective disaster risk reduction, you know, incentivizing movement away from the hazard prone areas, limiting development. And really, I think this is something we can take away from the Frank Slide disaster is how effective this could be in, in other locations as well. In this case, we have a known hazard, uh, very well monitored as well. And 
implementing those restrictions can't have been easy, especially in an industrial and high economic value location like like Frank. I think at one point it was supposed to be the next Vancouver, the next big city. So to really cripple that growth because of a, a risk is no small feat. And I, I just wanted to recognize that. What are they doing in terms of ongoing preparedness and monitoring? So the Alberta Geological Survey and the Alberta Energy Regulator maintain a very robust monitoring system on the mountain that provides constant real-time updates on the status of the mountains and the development of any new or worsening rock deformations. This monitoring work also includes development of possible debris runout maps for Turtle Mountain's different peaks, which allows people living and working in the area to identify potentially impacted buildings, infrastructure, or communities in the Crow's Nest Pass. How does this monitoring system work? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The Alberta Geological Survey and Alberta Energy Regulator maintain a monitoring system on Turtle Mountain, and it includes a number of different types of sensors on the mountain itself, as well as a radar system that runs along a track to scan the mountain for new or worsening deformations, and that happens about every eight and a half minutes. Depending on what the monitoring system detects, this corresponds to either a green, which is normal, yellow, which is a watch, orange, which is a warning, or red, which means slide imminent status. These statuses are relayed to the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and officials in the Crow's Nest Pass, and each each status has a number of actions associated with it. And these actions are laid out in the Turtle Mountain Response Protocol. So clearly some very technical monitoring going on. How does that translate into action? What plans and processes are in place to make sure that monitoring results in alerting and then evacuation and then response and recovery? So in my research throughout my project, I identified two main documents that support alerting and response on the mountain. One is the emergency response protocol for Turtle Mountain, which is maintained by the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. And the other one is the Alberta Energy Regulator, Alberta Geological Survey, Rules and Responsibilities Manual for the Turtle Mountain Monitoring Program. So to look at the emergency response protocol for Turtle Mountain, this is a high level overview of Alberta Emergency Management Agency response protocols. It identifies some key agencies and resources that would be mobilized in a response, as well as identifies the lead, which is the Alberta Geological Survey, coordinating, which is the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, and some supporting agencies, and then goes on to identify methods of communication that they would use during an escalation and risk or during a response. So turning to the AER AGS roles and responsibilities manual for the Turtle Mountain Monitoring Program, this one identifies key individuals and groups within the organization and identifies what their roles and responsibilities are during the different alert levels. So I was able to go over those two key documents as well. And I will say we did reach out to the Alberta Geological Survey and Alberta Emergency Management Agency, but weren't able to to get anybody to comment on those particular plans. So I will do my best. I did notice that both of these documents are almost entirely to do with monitoring and alerting and contain almost nothing to do with evacuation response and recovery. The slide maps um, are also purely a mapping function and don't contain much in the way of an impact assessment. So I saw that as a, a potential gap in some of these preparedness initiatives. And I also found it interesting, as you mentioned, that AEMA listed the Alberta Geological Survey as the lead agency in their response plan, uh, despite pretty clearly stating uh, in the Alberta Geological Survey website and, and document that they are really only an advisory body. So I think probably some roles and responsibilities still to clear up there. 
Um, there may be other internal plans and documents out there that we don't have access to, but from reviewing what was publicly available, I'm left with a few questions around evacuation locations, aid routes, stage resources, contractor lists for recovery and cleanup, and how search and rescue might occur as there isn't a heavy search and rescue team heavy enough to sift through a cubic kilometer of, of broken mountain. So still some chances for increased preparedness, I think, and lots of applicability to other hazard areas. So after learning about this piece of Canadian history, what questions are you left with and, and what were your main takeaways? So a couple of questions that I still have are related to, we were able to review the proposed response protocol, but as you identified, it would be interesting to find out more about the specific response and recovery plans and to be able to examine those and, and see if they are really robust enough. And also, are we ready for Frank slide 2.0? Is the mitigation preparedness response and recovery planning that has taken place enough to reduce the risk and to reduce the hazard heading into an, a new slide on the mountain? A couple takeaways that I have are I learned that it is tremendously valuable to study old disasters. They're very interesting from a historical and a cultural anthropology standpoint, but through an emergency management lens, there's so much that emergency managers can take away from an event like this. There's limited opportunity to study events like these in real time. So it's important even to look back at a landslide that occurred almost 120 years ago and see what lessons it has for you. Jenny, thank you so much for adding your lens to studying this event. And thank you so much for all the time that you spent on this project and producing this podcast is tremendously appreciated. And we'd love to have you back on the show if you ever want to do some further research. Awesome. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Andre Blaze-Stevens and Mariah Sagafina for sharing their time and expertise with us on the topic of Frank Slide. And again, a huge thank you to Jenny Steenstra, our epic student correspondent. Thank you for listening. And throughout the Rocky Mountains, friends, even to this very day, many people whisper and shudder, and they tremble when they say, Oh my God, how that mountain came down. Oh, how the mountain came down, down, down. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode was brought to you in part by ATB Financial. Donate to your favorite charities through ATB Cares. ATB Cares is a platform that allows you to donate and have your donation matched by ATB to further your impact. ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to Alberta non-religious charities to an annual limit of $360,000. Individual donations qualify for a maximum donation match of $500 and donors automatically receive electronic tax receipts. Learn more at atb.com. This episode was also brought to you in part by Pod Power. Our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, uh, Alberta Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Book Woman. Book Woman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. You've been listening to an epic podcast production a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. 
As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.